The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, welcome. If you are a newcomer, my name is Trevor. I am the teaching pastor here at Ridgewood Church. If you are here and it's your first time, we are, we are really thankful that you are gathering here with us this morning. If you are here and you are not a Christian and you came with a friend, we are thankful that you are here. If you're here this morning and you don't know exactly what you are, we are very grateful that you are here. We're, we're grateful because we believe that in this moment, as the saints gather and as they sing and as they pray and as they hear from God's word, something otherworldly is taking place. Something supernatural is taking place. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do over the course of the next few weeks is consider singing. Now, typically what we do is we like to walk through books of the Bible, but we kind of found ourselves in a weird place in the calendar, kind of between um, our, the series that we did related to being the church as we moved into these facilities, and before Advent, which begins in two Sundays, we're going to be studying the book of First John. We found ourselves with this two-week block, kind of what are we going to teach on in this two-week block before Advent begins? And we said, what if we took some time to talk about singing, to take a look at some of what the scripture has to say about singing? Now, if you've been around the church your whole life, or if you've hardly darkened the door of the church, whoever you are, you probably know that singing is something that Christians and churches seem to always do. And actually, that's always been the case. In 112 AD, there's this guy called Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor, who was writing to the Roman emperor about this pesky Christian movement that had emerged within the Roman Empire. They were worshiping without permit, which makes me think of Ron Swanson. Were they worshiping without permit, like, anyway, that's a Parks and Rec reference. Worshiping without permit and refusing to play ball in the emperor cult. They were refusing to announce their loyalty to, to the, the son of God who is the emperor, the Roman emperor. And so Pliny, as this governor, is writing the emperor for guidance on overseeing a Christian trial. So he's, he's prosecuting them for their atheism. In other words, their refusal to believe in the old gods, which was treasonous. And he's writing to the emperor because he says, I need some help and some wisdom in knowing how to, how to deal with these Christians. And this is what he writes. This is, again, from 112 AD. It's remarkable. Describing their offense, he says that these Christians were accustomed to, to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. And to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. And when, was, excuse me, and when this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food. He goes on to say that their offense is excessive and deplorable superstition that he must put an end to. And of course... 1,910 years later, here we are. You have never heard of Pliny the Younger, and here we are on a fixed day singing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to God. And we will follow this up with eating. I feel confident about that. Do you see what he says the earliest Christians did? They sang. And 50 to 60 years before that was written, the letters in the, New in the New Testament tell us exactly the same thing. They record the early practice of Christians, and guess what they did? Christians gathered and sang. And so, in continuity with the saints that have preceded us for the last 2,000 years, we're going to talk about singing, and we're going to do some singing. Today, we're going to look at Colossians 
particularly the section just read and, and sort of specifically verse 16. And then next week, Aaron is going to teach from Romans 15. And what we hope to do is not to get fat heads. We hope not to fill just our heads. Rather, we want to fill our hearts so that we can shake the rafters, singing to him, to Christ as to a God. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 once again. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. By the way, we talk about having continuity with the church, and it's amazing that they, they sing hymns to Christ, they eat together. It's also amazing that Paul had to say again and again, forgive each other, be patient with one another, be compassionate and kind to one another. It's like the same message that we're kind of constantly saying here is the same message he was saying there. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Colossians was written by Paul the Apostle, a guy who was converted to Christianity after he had a vision of Jesus. And Paul spent the rest of his adult life preaching the gospel, going around starting churches and writing these letters corresponding with churches about what it means to be Jesus' people. This letter in particular was written about three decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's invaluable in, in terms of, of learning what it looks like to live as Jesus' people, to live after and like King Jesus. Part one of chapter three, Paul writes that the Colossian Christians have been raised with Christ. They have been raised with Christ. Christ's resurrection has been given over to them, and they have been raised with Christ. In Ephesians, Paul says that they have been seated in the heavenly places. In chapter, uh, chapter 3 of, of Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes that their lives, like Russian nesting dolls, their lives are hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, seek the things that are above. Part 2 of chapter 3, he goes into detail about what seeking things above means. He says that Christians are to put off worldly practices. We're to, we're to put off vices and sins, things like anger, malice, greed, sexual immorality. We're to put those things off. And then Christians are to put on those things that are, that are contrary to that. They're to put on virtues like love, like patience, like forgiveness. Put on the life and practices of Jesus. Paul says that as Christians put on their new self, they're being renewed in the image of their creator. And the way that I always think about this is I think about how one of the things about ministry that I wasn't prepared for when I, when I first kind of stepped into official ministry after being ordained was weddings. Now, I'm, I'm really bad at formal things. I'm way too self-aware. I'm very informal. I struggle with leading confidently. And so learning to officiate weddings, which was supposed to be this magical day for all involved, was extremely difficult and daunting to me. I would put on my, my single suit, the one suit that I still have in my possession. I would put on that suit, and I would feel like a total goober, <laughs> like a complete fraud. Like I felt like everybody knew that I was a noob, that I, that I was new at this. They could all tell that the suit didn't quite fit right. It looked like a kid borrowing a suit, getting ready to go to the eighth grade dance or whatever. 
I'd go out there and I would nervously do my best impression of guys that I had seen officiate weddings, and I would just kind of hope for the best. I would hope that at the end of the day, whatever I said counted, and that they, would, they could be legally married at the end of this ordeal. But after about 462 weddings that I've officiated because of you all, <laughs> and after lots of awkwardness and lots of stress, I learned and I grew and I learned and I grew and, and I grew. And now I still only have one suit, and I'm still a little bit awkward. But actually, I've grown to actually kind of enjoy officiating weddings. I've come to see how much fun it is to be able to participate in that special moment for that couple. It's like, literally, I put on a wardrobe, and I grew into that wardrobe, we might say. I think what Paul's telling us is that is precisely what the Christian life is like. We take off these old practices, all of these things and these habits and these, these reactions that I, that I tend to have, these vices and these ruts that I've fallen into. I put off those practices in favor of new practices. Verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on like a suit, compassion. You say, it doesn't fit me well. Paul says, put it on anyway. You put on kindness. You say, it doesn't feel right. It feels uncomfortable. Put on humility. Practice these things and grow into them. Put on these practices and trust that the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, will grow you to fit that particular suit. And among those virtues and practices that are listed in verse 16, what practice does Paul tell us to put on? Singing. Singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And I love in verse 16, we can see that there's a kind of receiving and a twofold giving in response. The receiving. First, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May the word of Christ, the message of Christ, may it find a home in you. May it take up residence in you. May it become a part of who you are. Interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 5, it's a parallel passage we'll read more of in a second. Paul says there, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, teaching one another and singing songs of gratitude to God. And Paul's mind Letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you is, is parallel with this, this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, be filled with the word of Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. And in verse 15, it's also synonymous with the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. Be receptive to the message of Jesus. I think about Jesus' parable in Matthew 13 where he talks about the sower. And he talks about the various types of seed. What I think Paul's saying here is we want to be a kind of soil that receives seed and receives it well. That the, we're, a, we're a hospitable habitation, we might say, to the word of Christ. Let it take root in you. Let it fill you up. Let it find a place in your heart. At dinner a couple of nights ago, we were discussing this passage about what it means for the word of Christ to dwell richly within us. And we were talking about what does it mean for something to dwell? What does it mean for something to dwell richly? Talk about cheesecake. Cheesecake is rich. You know, may the word of Christ kind of be rich within us, you know? And Ruthie chimes up. She's waving like, Daddy. And, and I thought, as Ruthie was chiming up, she's our four-year-old little girl, I thought she was going to ask about the Brussels sprouts, which we had already answered about. It's like, you're giving Brussels sprouts, you eat the Brussels sprouts. That's the way it works. I thought she was contesting that once again. She said, Daddy. And I'm like, one second, Ruthie. We're talking about dwelling, talking with the boys about dwelling richly. She says, Daddy. I'm like, Ruthie, the Brussels sprouts can wait. I want to finish this point that I'm making with the boys. And then Emily finally says, Trevor, I think Ruthie wants to tell you something. And so I say, okay, yes, Ruthie. What would you like to say? And she said, and this is genius. I had to write this down. She sits up on her knees in the chair, and she says, dwelling. It's kind of like the place I go for my birthday bears. Build-a-bear. It's like the place I go for my birthday bears. They get the skinny bear. And there's the white stuff, 
And she says, it's small and it's white as snowballs, but it's not round like snowballs. It's all mixed up. And then they put the skinny bear on the hose with the glass box, and it fills the bear up with the snowballs. She says, that's, that's what I think about when I think about the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And we were like, Ruthie, that is brilliant. And we just like cracked up for a couple of minutes just laughing at how brilliantly she had kind of picked up on the imagery there. It's like, that's exactly it. Paul's saying that we're to let the word find good soil in us. And through that, Jesus' peace given by his spirit, it enters into us and it becomes integrated into our person. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly like the skinny bear at the birthday bear place. And the result is there's two kinds of giving, a horizontal giving and a vertical giving. Horizontal giving, we might say. Result is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. As the word of Christ finds good soil in us, it, it spills out in teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. By offering encouraging words, by speaking scripture in a, into one another's life. But also, again, Ephesians 5, we're filled with the Spirit so that we can address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We receive the word, it dwells richly within us, we give to our neighbor by teaching and encouraging them, but also in singing to them, Paul says. Again, verse 15, the peace of Christ rules our hearts, and it's a peace that makes us into one body. There's an inescapably communal element to what's being described here, and Aaron will speak to that more fully next Sunday. But then there's this second kind of giving, this vertical giving, we might say. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If I were to ask you, which of the holidays is the most Christian, what would you say? What's the most Christian of the holidays? Ben, we've got to vote for Easter over here. You say, maybe some of you like Ben, you say Easter because that's when Jesus was resurrected. That's like the pinnacle of everything. That's the, that's the defining moment in human history. I think there's a good argument to be made for that. Maybe some of you, you got your Christmas trees up, you got your garland wrapped around your stair steps, you're listening to your Mariah Carey, you say, Christmas, Christmas has got to be the most Christian of the holidays. It's when Jesus was born. Jesus, if he wasn't born, he couldn't be resurrected. Christmas precedes Easter. It's got to be Christmas. You got the jingle bells, you got the, you got the joyousness of the holidays, the sweet potato crunch, you got all that stuff. Maybe if you're super reformed, you'd say Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517. We got a, a whole section right here. But I think you could actually make the case that the most Christian holiday is Thanksgiving. Yes, I know Thanksgiving is not a part of the Christian calendar. I know Thanksgiving is a holiday invented by Abraham Lincoln several decades ago, whatever, four score, whatever, years ago. And there's nothing necessarily holy about eating turkey and cranberries and mashed potatoes and yeast rolls and sweet potatoes and deviled eggs and pumpkin pie, though that feels pretty sacramental to me. But the practice of gratitude is deeply, deeply, deeply Christian. And actually, more than that, singing with gratitude is deeply, deeply, deeply Christian. In fact, this is a pattern that is given to us all throughout the scriptures. God acts and his people respond with song. Because God's people are a singing people. What is, what is the largest book in our Bibles? The Psalms. Songs that are sung in response to God's grace to his people. A great example of this is in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15 comes after the Lord has seen the people of Israel in their plight, 
being ruled over in bondage and oppression by Pharaoh and Egypt. The Lord sees them in their misery and their plight. He remembers his promises and he sends a deliverer. He sends Moses. Moses is used by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. They're being pursued to the Red Sea. And God in his grace destroys those who would overcome them. And how do the people of Israel respond? By breaking out the tambourines, by dancing and singing. Exodus 15, 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God's people are a singing people because God's people are a rescued people. And the appropriate response to rescue is songs of gratitude. Singing in response to all that, is God, to all that God has done for his people. And so for us... As we think of, our, think of our situation, we think of Paul's command to sing with gratitude, the question is, what do we have to be thankful for? What do we have, what, what has God given us that prompts a song within us? Three things. Have you considered that there was a time when you weren't? There was a time when you were not, until you were, by God's will. God called you into existence. God crafted you together in, his, in your mother's womb into a body equipped with vocal cords and lungs and ear canals that register vibrations in the air that our brain interprets as sounds. You, you were crafted together in your mother's womb and born into a world of sound waves that we feel and receive as so much more than just sound waves, but as something that speaks to our soul in the form of harmonies and melodies and key changes. God called us into being, into a body able to sing songs that are pleasing to him. And he feeds us, and he gives us breath, and he gives us life, and he gives us heartbeats. And every moment of every day, we are sustained by God's good and happy providence. So the first reason we have to sing is that God created and sustains us. That you are here, period. But what's so crazy about the Christian gospel is that though we were created by God and though we owe that God everything, we reject our creator and our sustainer. And instead of eliminating us like we deserve, instead of bringing his judgment to bear on us, which is precisely what we deserve, instead he sends his son, Jesus, to own our predicament. Jesus takes on flesh. He is knit together in his mother's womb. He becomes like us in every respect, to live a perfect life, to obey the Father, to go to death on the cross in order that he could be raised from the dead and share his righteousness, his life, his death, and his resurrection with us. To seat us with him in the heavenly places, hidden with Christ and God. In Colossians 1, Paul says it this way, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins which sounds a whole lot like an exodus. God created and sustained us. You know what else? God has redeemed us in Christ. And what's more, get a load of this. I love this. The prophet Zephaniah offering a word of hope to God's people. This is one of those passages that you just have to double check every now and again to make sure it's still in there. The prophet Zephaniah says this, 
speaking to God's people. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will will quiet you by his love. And listen to this. He will exult over you with loud singing. The reason we have to sing is that God created and sustained us. He redeems us. And listen, God sings over us. A pastor friend of mine pointed out that the Hebrew word for singing is often translated something like cry out or shout for joy. It's pronounced something like renah. He makes the point that you have to open your mouth wide to renah. He says this is a happy loudness. God is not like a reluctant friend being dragged against his will onto the stage at karaoke night. Instead, God opens his mouth and he belts it out with loud singing, his joy and his people. So it's like... How could we read that and not sing in response? This is what a heart filled with Christ's word and his spirit like a Build-A-Bear. This is what a heart filled with Christ does, is it sings with thankfulness in its heart to God. Two points of application for us. Two things to mention here in light of this passage. We want to apply this sort of pastorally, and then we want to apply this individually. The first way that we want to talk about this passage, and the first way we want to apply it, is as a church, we want to choose songs that foster what Paul commands here in these scriptures. How do we choose our songs? How do do we select the songs that we sing as a church family? This is not an exact science, but there's three things that we look for in a song. We'll start where probably most of us start. The first thing that we ask of any song is this. Is this song beautiful? Is this song pleasant? Songs must compel us to lift our voices, the melodies, the lyrics, The song must compel us, invite us to sing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, uh, Life Together, he asked this. He says, why sing? He says, because the, the words that were given in Christ are not adequate enough to just say. The magnitude of the glory of what's being described here necessitates singing, necessitates lifting our voices. God created a world in which harmonies and builds and keychains are possible And God has made it such that those things register with us on an emotional level. And so we want to find songs that are beautiful, that are pleasant to sing, that sound delightful to our ears. We're not talking about emotionally manipulative songs, but rather recognizing the beauty that God has embedded into his good world and receiving it as a gift to his glory. Have you ever considered that God actually delights in our singing? That God enjoys our singing? God delights in God, and when we delight in God, we're just getting on board with what God has always done. So God delights in our delight in God, we might say. And music is a tool that helps us to get there. Music helps us to delight in God. The beauty of the song reminds us of the beauty of the gospel, of the beauty of the God who is behind the gospel. We want songs that do something to us, that that lift our hearts, that train us how to feel about the truths that we sing to help us delight in God. Not every song needs to be as transcendent as the hallelujah chorus, right? But pretty songs do something to us. And so we want to sing songs that are pretty, that that are beautiful. Actually, in Colossians 3.16, when Paul Paul talks about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, some commentators think that what he's describing there are different forms of singing. Psalms, singing the psalms, singing hymns, which are structured one way, and spiritual songs, which are structured another way. 
It's possible that what Paul is highlighting there is that we have, we, we have this invitation to even be creative with the songs that we tailor for the purpose of singing to God's name. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We want to sing songs that are beautiful, that correspond to the beauty of the truth that we're singing. The second thing that we want to ask of every one of our songs that we sing is this. Is the song true? Hopefully in your path towards maturity in Jesus, you've thought about this one, that songs can't just be beautiful, they also need to say something of substance. In Paul's mind, there's an obvious connection with the word dwelling richly in our hearts and singing. And maybe it's because Paul sees them as mutually reinforcing. It's like you have these good, dense, Christ-focused and scripturally saturated songs that come from the scriptures that then turn our hearts back to the scriptures, that singing good, rich songs actually help the word of Christ dwell richly within us. We want our songs to be rich because if we're singing in response to what God has done, we need the songs to talk about what God has done, to reflect the truth of what he's accomplished in Christ. Now again, in Life Together, Bonhoeffer says, why sing? He says, because spoken words are inadequate. But he continues by asking, why don't we just hum? He says, it's because we sing words to God. We sing words of praise to God, words in line with Christ's words. And so one thing to pay attention to, and maybe you've noticed this before, is that when it comes to church music, songs that we can sing in church, there's a difference between songs that are true and songs that are not false. Does that make sense? Songs that are true and songs that are not false. You may listen to a song and it's not saying something like, salvation by works is my only hope. It's not saying, uh, Jesus is not co-equal and of the same essence with the Father. It's not saying that. It's not denying anything fundamental about the faith. But it's not exactly packing a punch. It's a little bit flimsy, right? So when we think about the songs that we sing, we're not looking for songs that are not false, if you understand what I mean. That bar is too low. We want songs with oomph, right? Not every song has to be complex and dense, but there's got to be some meat on those bones. Otherwise, what's the point in singing it? We want songs that are true, not just not false. So is the song beautiful? Is the song true? Those are two questions that we want to ask of the songs that we sing at church. But here's one that I think very few of us have actually considered, but it's absolutely essential to the singing of songs in the life of the church. It's this. Is this song singable? Is this song singable? Have you ever heard a song on the radio or it's on Spotify or is his radio a thing still, his radio, whatever? It hits you and you're like, Man, this song, it it lands exactly right. Why can't we sing this song in church? It's beautiful. It's saying something good here. It moves me emotionally. It is such a jam. Why can't we sing this kind of music in church? And I'll tell you, one primary reason we can't sing those songs in church is because you have to be Whitney Houston or Josh Groban or Lauren Daigle to sing it. Honestly, that is the challenge with the vast majority of songs that worship culture produces, So many of these songs that we love on the radio or worship albums or whatever, to say nothing else about the quality of the songs, is that they just aren't singable at church. The melody is all over the place. The song is super syncopated and rhythmic. You have to listen to it 50 times before you can anticipate where the thing is going. Maybe it's helpful for us to recognize that there is a difference between a Christian song and a church song. All church songs are Christian songs, but not all Christian songs are church songs. They don't necessarily belong in the worship gathering. The point on Sunday mornings when we gather to worship, the point isn't for us to recreate that great worship experience you had at the red light. The point isn't for us to recreate 
the, the worship experience that you had in the dark of your bedroom by yourself. The point isn't even for the band to have a good time. The point is this, that we would address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything in God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what the primary instrument is on a Sunday? Is it an organ? A piano? A guitar? It actually should be the same regardless of your denomination, regardless of being traditional or contemporary or whatever. The primary instrument, listen, the primary instrument on a Sunday is us, the church. The church making melody from their hearts towards God. That is the instrument that we are trying to play week after week. And so we want our song selections and our volume levels and our lighting levels to nurture and facilitate and promote that. So the sweet spot we're trying to hit is songs that are beautiful, true, and singable. But let me also just offer a pastoral request here. Be patient. Church music is a lightning rod. I understand that. It's something that is incredibly important, and we need to think well about the music that we sing. But we all have different opinions about songs and arrangements and the like. Let's put on holy and beloved, chosen ones, compassionate and patient and humble hearts, even as we think about the music we sing. We all have different opinions about songs and the arrangements. Let's be charitable and patient. Maybe not every song nails it on all three criteria. Or maybe you don't like certain songs. I don't like certain songs, and I help pick them out, you guys. Maybe you groan when you see that song in the bulletin. In fact, I feel certain that you will not like all of them, but your neighbor might. And your neighbor might need to hear you singing with joy and gusto, even if you hate that one, right? We want to select songs that are beautiful, true, and singable. And we want to sing as a church because that is the instrument we're trying to play. So how do we respond as individuals? You ready? Here's our big takeaway this morning. Sing. Sing. Sing with thanksgiving. Sing loud. Sing out. Lift your hands. Raise your voice. Sing a hymn to Christ as God. Sing, sing, sing. You say, what if, I, what if I'm one of those types that doesn't like music? What if I don't like singing? That's some, some of you come in and church is about biding your time until the sermon. You're like, that's the money portion. What I'd say to you is I'm struck by Isaiah 35.10, which says that the ransom of the Lord will return to Zion with singing. That is our future, is singing with God forever. And we've got to learn to love it now, or we're going to have a hard time when it comes around then. Let's sing like Exodus 15, like the persecuted Christians in Rome, like Christians all over the planet this morning. Let's sing with thanksgiving in our heart to God, rejoicing in all that he is. You say, my voice is bad. I like to sing, but I'm embarrassed at the quality of my voice. Paul says to you, sing. If your voice is bad, sing louder. Christ's strength is made known in our weakness. Sing out and show how strong Jesus is. That's why I sit on the front, is I don't want to subject anybody else to having to hear me sing. That's why I sit on the front, because I want to sing out and hopefully make other bad singers in the room feel like they've got a place too. I read this recently. I don't remember where, but I'm obsessed with it. Not every Christian has a voice, but every Christian has a song. Sing. You say, but what if I roll in and I just don't feel like singing? What if I just don't have it this morning? I'd say, what do you tell your kids when they don't want to eat the Brussels sprouts? Or what do you tell yourself when you don't feel like exercising? What reason do you have not to sing? 
It's interesting to me that Paul says to put on the practice of singing. To put on the practice of singing. To put on joyful, grateful singing as an outfit and trust that the Lord will grow you into it. Sing. Once again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, man. This comes from his book, Life Together. He says this. Sing unto the Lord a new song. The book of Psalms enjoins us again and again. It is the Christ hymn that is sung by the whole church of God on earth and in heaven, and in which we are summoned to join. Listen to this. God has prepared for himself one great song of praise throughout eternity, and those who enter the community of God join in this song. It is the song that the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the world. It is the victory song of the children of Israel after passing through the Red Sea, the Magnificat of Mary after the Annunciation, the song of Paul and Silas in the night of prison, the song of the singers on the sea of glass after their rescue, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It is the new song of the heavenly fellowship. And friends, we will be singing it forever. Sing. Let us sing with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. Now, typically what we do in these next few moments is we take some time to pray and reflect. We're not going to do that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and sing. Because it would feel inappropriate for us to do anything else in response to this passage but to sing, and to sing, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to invite you to stand. Lord God, we come to you as the one who created and sustains us, the one who gives us breath in our lungs. We come to you as those who have been redeemed by the blood of your son, purchased with something more precious than silver or gold. We have been purchased with the blood of your son. And we come to to, to you, God, as, as those who are sung over by you. And we pray that as we sing and as we belt out good, bad, ugly, we pray, God, that you would delight in our singing and our, and our attempts to honor and lift high your name. And we pray, Lord God, that you would be honored by our church family, honored in the way that we approach singing, honored in the way as individuals we choose to sing, even and especially when we don't feel like it, trusting that even through singing, you sanctify us. God, I pray for any of our friends who are here today who who, who do not yet know you, who feel like they are completely on the outside of the things that have been said this morning. I pray that through our singing and through our celebration of the gospel, I pray that they would see something otherworldly present here with us. God, I pray, even for these kids who are in the room here who, who don't yet know you, I pray that through their singing, seeing their, their mom or their dad or both mom and dad just belting it out, I pray, God, that you would open their hearts to just the glory of the gospel and the glories of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be honored in our time together. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.